All right, the request was Psalm 51, um, which is in danger, you know, it's one that's in danger of being too familiar, but we'll see if we can pull the pieces apart. And um, 51, you know this, uh, you did? Did you do 51? You didn't do 51, did you? No. Different pastor, different place. Different pastor, different place. Katie, did you do 51 down here? Okay, good. I can't remember where I put Wait a minute, we'll do it again. Hey, if we can't remember, nobody else can. Every once in a while, I, I, I know that the threshold for slipping in a sermon on you is six years. Every once in a while, things get really bad. I can slip a sermon and I preach six years ago, none of you remember of it. You're like, oh. So, you know, the thing is, is like, but maybe it's down to six weeks or six days. How's he doing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, you're a bad man. Janet, you're... <laughs> Different era. Okay, here you go. 51. Um, anybody know the story? You remember the story? You remember the story, right? Or at least the ascription. Now, it comes, you know, um, the ascription. Is the ascription the inspired, inerrant word of God, Pastor Gaining? <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Okay. So, everybody's got a hot button, and that one was his. Um, you remember where this is from, right? Uh, David has a big, big fall. Uh, Bathsheba. It's great when you can get a couple of things. I mean, every good soap opera has, you can't just have, even Seinfeld has three storylines going at one time, right? The Simpsons, always three storylines, right? Tied together? <laughs> the glimmer of recognition. So at least you have, you have murder, adultery, and confrontation all wrapped up into one psalm, and you're not even a verse in. So um, you know the story that uh, he uh, steals another man's wife, makes her pregnant, then murders to cover it up. Then Nathan comes and tells the story about uh, the, the bad old man who uh, steals his neighbor's, the rich man who steals his neighbor's one sheep. Um, David, of course, says, you know, that, that man should die, and then you're the man, this great, this great dramatic scene that we sort of like to do to each other, although by the end of verse 3, I don't know if you want to do that to each other anymore. You're the man, see? Which is, um, we always like sort of saying things about other people's sins, but then our own, uh, we might have to work at that a little bit. So uh, that's the ascription here, although mine doesn't have it, but yours may have it. Um, just the first, I got, how about the first four bits here? Be gracious to me, O God, in true love, in the fullness of your mercy, blot out my misdeeds, wash away all my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. What? Yes? Oh, I thought I thought because I was on the thing. Am I not on the thing? Okay, never mind. All right, sorry. I, uh, I don't have enough technological space here, Carol, to get everything up and going, so I was trying to figure out what to do here. All right, once again, here we go. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> be gracious to me, O God, in true love. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> everything is about, everything's on the bias this morning. Okay, uh, be gracious to me, O God, in thy true love, in the fullness of thy mercy. <laughs> Blot out my misdeeds. 
Wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. For well I know my misdeeds, and my sins confront me all day long. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done what displeases thee. So thou mayest be proved right in thy charge, and just in passing sentence. We ought to just stop there. Okay, what do you notice, or what do you think? You got anything cooking here? Or when you read this, uh, you know, how does it, how does it come to you? He does seem contrite. <clears throat> right. Um, so that was the, that's actually a good, um, a good confirmation word, actually. We always try to teach him what contrition is. So long ago, far away, did you learn this? What's contrition? That is a cool color. That is a great color. Man, oh man, that enlivens the day. So contrition, what is that? Whoa, got a little downhill there. Um, it is being sorry. But, sorry for what? There's different kinds of being sorry. Yeah. That's good. So there's, a, there's sorry for being caught, which is not quite contrition. Uh, and then there's, they're, they're sorry, sorry for doing evil, right? So there's different kinds of being sorry. Contrition goes with sorry for doing evil. Um, it's that line that says, um, my sins always confront me. Now, <clears throat> we've been going a bit on Sunday morning, and I think, you know, I sort of observed this last week, and then I don't want to get too far, I don't want <laughs> to lapse into what we're going to do the next couple of weeks um, on Sunday morning. But I will say, uh, as much as the psalm says, which I've been struck by our inability. For well I know my misdeeds and my sin confront me all day long. One of the things, uh, well, I should just ask you, and this will probably be generational, I'm looking for some support from those of you who are older or a good lie. Now, part of this is going to be whether or not people will, haven't said that, people will admit they're older or not. So I probably ruined the question because to answer the question, probably you have to say, I'm older and yes, I know it. So probably this is the wrong demographic. I shouldn't have done that, should I? See, now I'm already in trouble. The question is whether your pastor long ago, far away, actually took, took you through the catechism and taught you to confess. I know that despite what the confessions say, that private confession will never depart from us, and we do it more than the Catholics, and... I, you know, I know despite that we, you know, Gainig went face down and swore to that, and you all said that's our book, and nobody's actually ever read that book, but nevertheless, that's our book. Uh, my guess is, my guess is, my fear is that nobody ever took you through the commandments one by one and sort of taught you the ramifications of it. Now, disabuse me of that. Tell me that I'm completely wrong and your pastors did that for you. Thank you so much. And I just want to go on record saying, my mistake, you aren't older, you're just faithful. All right, thank you very much. So I, I, I asked a bad question there. That can happen, right? Yeah, I, just don't, I just don't even want to go there. I just want to retract that part of the question. I just want to say, how many of your pastors taught you to do that? Okay, so that's, and you know what I'm talking about. If you have a Bible, if you have this Bible in front of you, you know, they've tucked the catechism. Oh, no, the answers aren't in there anymore, are they? And the answer parts aren't, you know, but it says things like uh, fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. Part of what you confess as a father, for example, you say, 
Um, I haven't been very supportive of my wife. I'm not very kind to my kids. I, I haven't, I haven't, um, I'm not around enough. Um, I, I've been less gentle than I should be. There, there's sort of this way of, of running through with each commandment um, how it applies. Now, let me just press you who were taught that. Um, given the fact that, uh, I'll, just, I'll just ask you, I already know the answer, but I'll ask you. They didn't, they didn't teach you that toward private confession. Nobody said, we're going to do this and then you're going to go to private confession. Because you know what, yeah, exactly. Because what happens when you go to confession then is, the reason they teach you this is so that you, when you go to confession, you say, boy, here's the thing I'm really struggling with. I mean, you're just, it's just Oprah, but by yourself. Here's the thing I'm really struggling with. Um, and then, um, and this is, and I've, I've done it to God in this way. You know, I did it to somebody else, I did it to God, I've done it in this way. That's, that's where that is supposed to take you, where you can have what happens in this psalm, which is things kind of taken away and actually believe that they've, they've actually gone. And part of this psalm is trying to convince you that that's happened. Um, so here's the thing. In, in your generation, you know, in your generation, there were pastors who still taught you that, but they didn't tell you what, it was, what that was good for. And now it's rarely even taught. And part of what I observe in, in our congregation is people do the most horrible things and then they sort of blow it off with, eh, sorry about that. And this, this psalm is just utterly different from that. When he says, um, verse 3, for well I know my misdeeds. I mean, what he's actually saying is, I've had a good hard look at myself I've examined myself according to the Ten Commandments. I know exactly what I've done. I know when I did it. And I know the horrible effects that that had. And the next verse is, my sins confront me all day long. I know my sins and my sins know me. I confront my sins and my sins confront me. And part of the reason we have such difficulty living a Christian life beyond forgiveness is that we don't take our sins seriously. For example, if you say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry about that, and then you do it immediately again, you weren't really sorry, and I'm not sure you were really forgiven. Because there's no forgiveness without confession. And if you say, you know, I'm really sorry I did that, and then you start doing it again and again and again, there's just that is just a loser's game. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know how to address that. So the value here of this psalm, one value is how stark this is. Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, you stole something that wasn't yours, you broke your marriage vows, you fathered a child, um, not by your wife, and you killed her husband to cover it up. And yet you've carried on, and you know, to sweeten the deal is, you've carried on as the king of Israel and, you know, if he wanted to press him, he could have gone on and said, and by the way, you're the prefigurement of, the, of, of Christ, the Messiah, who will come, and you've ruined that too. Right? And that's part of the thing then. Do you remember how, this, do you remember how the story ends here? Do you, what happens after the story? So this all happens. Do you remember what happens in the rest of the story? The baby dies, which is very interesting, I mean, on, a, on a bunch of levels. One is the innocent child dies. This woman who's been victimized, you know, uh, suffers the way, uh, you know, 
Bathsheba seems to be fairly faultless the way the story is told, so she suffers mightily at the death of her child. And David, do you remember what David does? Remember? Good. Go, keep going. And then? Thank you very much. And that goes on for a couple of days, right? I recall six days. Do you recall that? Yeah. So there's this period when the, the child is in distress, and he's sort of face down, not eating, not drinking. They're terribly concerned about him. What he's doing there is actually rigorously confronting what he's done, right? And then on the far side of that rigor, remember he gets up, he washes his face, and I think he eats, and people say he's been restored. Which is then, you see, that's the far side of the rigor. So I don't know if you can, I don't know if I can say this, I don't want to make too much of an equation of it, but this is a little bit of Bonhoeffer's cheap grace, which is if you don't confess very much, you're not forgiven very much. If you can just kind of destroy somebody and then sort of say, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry about that, and move on as if you think that just squares it up and even move on and just do it again, that is not the kind of forgiveness, at least, that Psalm 51 talks about, and it's not the kind of forgiveness this circumstance. So I guess what I'm trying to press you toward, you who were fortunate enough to hear from your pastor, at some point, uh, examine yourself, and I bet in your cases, the way this sort of morphed in the, because we were too nervous about private confession, probably what your pastor said is, he probably pushed that toward the Eucharist, which is not wrong, it's just not full. He probably said, make sure before you go to the Eucharist you have a look through this, right? And then that itself got morphed down to not private confession, but on Saturday night you used to go to the church and what? Yeah, you'd register before you went. You'd stop on your way out to dinner at the Elks Club, and you'd say, ah, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm coming to the Eucharist tomorrow. And then that sort of got truncated into, yes. Yes. Really? Really? You give me new hope for the church. You give me new hope for the church. Those kind of people. Oh, yes. That's how people all, they're always wondering what that's about. Right. So your congregation sorted out the really big sinners who had to go past Mrs. Missy all the way to the pastors from the little sinners who just could stop with Mrs. Missy. Perfect. Most church secretaries can. Yes, you can handle a lot. Yes, there we go. Uh, yeah. Well, God bless your God bless your pastor. <laughs> you know, you, you're, the story was so good up till then. Up till that point, you were you were going so well in support of the church in the office. No. Oh. That's not what I'm interested in. Okay, well, that's a great sadness. Um, hopefully. So, so here's the thing. Uh, what, I would, what, what I think is, is in the, in the good old days, like Nathan David's good old days, um, when, you, when you did a sin, 
you know, you owned up to it. If it was a public sin, you owned up to it publicly. And I'm not, I'm not talking about any sort of kind of public flogging. And you have to hear this in the right way. What I'm not, what I'm not looking for is for public shaming and public humiliation. What I am looking for is an honest recognition of how evil damages us when we do it. When I do evil, it damages me. And when I do evil to you, it damages you. And the uh, sort of an inconsequential, oh, I'm really sorry about that. Sorry about the mess. I shouldn't have done that. And then going on, after, after, you, after that, neither, that neither recognizes the damage in yourself nor the recognizes the damage that you've done to other people or the recognizes the damage that you've done to the community. Imagine what Israel must have been like when the king <laughs> is found out to be, and this is pretty difficult to hide, an adulterer, a murderer, you know, a liar, and a thief. That must have been a bad day in Israel. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now that's not as good a color. Uh, yeah. Here's the thing. In my younger days, I would fling this back into that blue thing and it would be perfect. In these latter days of less... There's every possibility I could put out your eye. That's exactly right. I just, I feel like, I still feel like I've got it, you know? Like still feel like I could, Whoa. see, but I'm short. If I'd admit, I mean, if I'd have just, oh, you'd go back to the seminary with that in your eye. They'd like, what happened? Bible study, I know. Um, I don't know. When you're, it's the nervous of crowds, the nerves. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. Nothing, nothing, is, all the fun is out of life. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'd have found that eventually. <laughs> um, now, let me ask you that. We, that's how we interpret the text. We interpret the text of, you know, we sin against God, therefore we don't have to square up with our next door neighbor. Do you think that's what the text is saying? Good. All right, let, me ask you, let me ask the same question in a different way. Are you more scared of God or more scared of me or anybody else you've sinned against? Oh boy, uh, I hope not. I, I, here's the thing, I think, whoa, well, yeah, hmm, ha. But you know, yeah. God is far away, he doesn't deal with that, he has to deal with that. Boy, all right. I must admit I've never read the text this way, I've read it exactly the opposite. So, but I think you're actually making a practical and reasonable point. Um, it's pretty easy to... Well, we think it's pretty easy to just sort of blow past God as well. Yeah. I think he, I think he might, and practically, I, I think you're very right. I think he's actually making the, is it a bigger deal to sin against me or a bigger deal to sin against God? Let me put it that way. Probably maybe I put it in a fear way. To, is it a bigger deal to sin against me or sin against God? If you have to choose, it's a false choice. If you have to choose, I mean, this is an easy one, isn't it? It's a much bigger deal to sin against God. Yeah, I mean, I'm, come on. I mean, you can find all kinds of reasons to sin against me. That's easy. Uh, but to sin against God is a fearsome sort of thing. I mean, in the good old days when the earth would open up and swallow the occasional sinner family, make them an example for other sinner families, it was so much easier in the church. Boom, the Ferrers are gone. Okay, well, let's be careful about cigars and cellos, okay? That from now on, I mean, we'll just have to, 
you know, but just every hand, you know. The problem is, is that we sometimes, I think we can bang away at our neighbor because a lot of times we can get the best of our neighbor and then we can even tell ourselves we're not very big sinners or maybe they deserved it or, you know, I owed him one or whatever. But the reality is, um, anytime you sin against me, you sin against God. And anytime I sin against you, I sin against God. That's why in your prayers, you should be startlingly careful against praying against other people. As in, come on, Lord, let's you and me go get them. Or, we're the righteous remnant and they're not. Or, those guys are the bad guys, right? Or, come on, Lord, vindicate me against my enemies, which, of course, are your enemies, right? What, too much? <laughs> Had all he could take? <laughs> I mean, I mean that's the, see, that's the, that's the problem. I just would be, I would be startlingly careful. You know, Kleinig's sort of very pungent words, no man is my enemy. Um, I, I just would be, I would just be very careful about that as you, as you sort of um, go through this. You know, kind of when you get to verse 4, against you only, have I sinned and done what displeases you? So you can be right uh, and I can be wrong. So you can be right and pass a sentence and I can be wrong. I, just, just, I, would just, I would just be careful. Your first confession is to the Lord. And then um, after the Lord, uh, you square up with the people around you as well. But to, you can't play those two off against each other. Yep. Uh-oh. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. Koenig is a reliable man. Then Patton was reliable, too. <clears throat> yes, I remember the chaplain. Yes, he, I do remember that. The chaplain had, yes, right. I, there was some matter, matter of satisfaction with that prayer as well. But um, politics always messes it up, which is why you don't put a flag in your sanctuary. He doesn't, love, he doesn't love the Americans more than he loves the Haitians or the Australians. Well, we used to have bad race relations. <coughs> I mean, the problem with having a flag in your sanctuary is it's like it's me and, me and Jesus in the American way. That's a horribly, that's, that's people who think that should get a passport. That's my pastoral prescription. Yeah, I know. I sent it out to cleaning. I don't know if the cleaners lost it or it just didn't. We sent it out the same day we sent out the Methodist Sunday School flag. You know that's the Methodist Sunday School flag? That one that was in all our classrooms? That's the Methodist Sunday School flag. Yeah, sure. Then in Coney Island, around 1900s. Ooh, it's got a cross on it. Let's run it up the flagpole. What? So uh, politics makes it more difficult still. Politics makes it more. Now, because here's the thing that I don't want to say. Well, here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem with that particular thing. 
this is the other side of Lutheran, Lutheran, Lutherans that is sometimes not very good, which is they're, they are, are too passive about engaging evil in the world. Okay? Sometimes they're too passive. And the Second World War is probably a good example of that. Uh, more like Bonhoeffer and less like uh, maybe some other folks would have been a good prescription in the Second World War. Right? Uh, but the politics is very difficult because you don't have a united the whole notion of Christian nations and everybody's on the same page and then evil nations and everybody's evil is a very difficult problem. Yeah. That's a very um, that's an extraordinarily difficult problem, uh, and sometimes that's where the off-sided but off-misused thing of sin boldly and you know repent even you know more boldly believe even more boldly believe even more boldly probably comes into play for me. So hold that for the next big war, and but my but my ad- admonition would be. We need to do a better job of um, seeing evil in the world. Sometimes we don't do a very good job of that. But I also, I'm very nervous about the various channels I turn on where you can turn on, you know, uh, one channel and uh, the religious right is claiming Jesus as their own and the next channel, the religious left is changing. And so that's a very difficult, a difficult circumstance. So, yeah. Yes, that's right. I've often suggested that we should cancel pastoral care at the seminary and just have you guys watch Andy Griffith reruns for a term. Pretty much everything you need to know about being a pastor is in the Andy Griffith reruns, don't you think? Yes, that's right. That's right. The good old days. Uh, Rewinding all the way back to evil in our midst, however, it sometimes is easier in fact, I, I'm actually going to say the same thing that I just said about nations. I'll say it about the church, too. Sometimes I think we're, we're a bit fra- afraid to name evil in our midst, which is actually what happens here. He actually says, this is evil, and we won't put up with that. Um, maybe we're getting to the point in this congregation where we can get close to that and do it honestly, not do it in some sort of um, hyperbolic way or some sort of political way or some sort of, because it'll win for my side way. There are things... Um, that need to be named as evil, and they need to be repented of, and haven't been repented for, then we need to move on as new and better people, which is actually the other side of this, and I probably should you know, move to the gospel side rather than the law side fairly quickly. But I just, at least on terms of the law side, um, the best pastoral care is always specific, and specificity comes with knowing the commandments, kind of full blasted, and being able to say, this is where I've sinned. This is where I'm horrible. This is the damage that I've done. And this is the damage that I'll never do again. And then, the other side around that is to be able to say, we still love you. You're a bum, but you're our bum. But there may be something in saying, but you know what? Please don't do that again because it's so painful. Um, And that, a good, thorough confession, along with a good, thorough forgiveness, um, the gratitude for that, which David shows here and which he showed in his own life after his child died by getting up, washing his face, moving on, being a king, broken as he was. In fact, a king who then never got to build the temple because he wasn't the right guy. He was warlike. He was inferior. He was disobedient. And so he was punished um, in the way that Moses didn't get to see the promised land. 
You know, your sins have consequences. My sins have consequences. They can be forgiven, and then we need to fix up the consequences. When we don't confess thoroughly, though, when we just sort of blow it off and say, ah, you know, I'm kind of sorry about that. Sorry if that hurt you. Um, We haven't gotten all the way there. Yes, please. You need a friend and a pastor. This is brilliantly said. So, do you have weaknesses that my wife doesn't have or that I don't have? I have weaknesses that she doesn't have and you don't have. I actually know in my heart the two or three things that are always going to come at me. And over the course of my life, I've been able to see them come at me in cycles. I've been able, I've actually got to the point where I can say, wow, that hasn't come to me for a while. And then when it comes, I can say, I, I can say wow, that's coming at me and it's coming at me hard. And that's because of who I am as a person. And you have, I would guess, similar things. There are things that just, <clears throat> that are your weak spots. How about that? There are things that are, <laughs> Father John. <laughs> there you go. You must have been the same place she was. Exactly, that's right. Right. Yes, right. So, but now the thing is, is uh, now the only place I want to mildly disagree with you, I, I heard a new Luther story where, um, I, <laughs> no, it could be your story. I thought it was a brilliant story where Luther's having this, he writes about having this horrible nightmare, uh, and then he wakes up and the devil's sitting on the end of his bed, and he goes, ah, it's only you. And then he rolls over and goes back to sleep. Okay. Now that's a very strange tale, right? And it also speaks to a man who was able alone to get it right. Most of us aren't that good or that brave. So my answer to you would be, I agree with everything you say, and then beyond that I would say, get a friend and get a pastor. Um, You need a friend where you can say, wow, I'm really struggling with this. Or you may need a friend to distract you. Let's go bowling. Yes. (laughs) Can't help it. Okay, if you want (laughs) to... Or, or a husband, okay, or a husband who bowls. <clears throat> they can, but I did, here's, I'm going to just give you, yeah. A really good friend can help you. Yes, right. A really good friend who can, who can help you and keep their mouth shut can help you. Yeah, I agree. I'm just pressing you. I'm agreeing with you, and I'm just pressing it on. Because the thing that your pastor is good for is being under the seal, which is whatever you say to him, he's not going to say. Um, and, and partly because your pastor then speaks for Christ. So he has two things. You can come and say to your pastor, for example, when I go to confession, I can say, this has plagued me for a long time, up and down, my entire life, and it's plaguing me right now, to which a confessor with whom I have a relationship will say to me, all right, let's sort that out. How is it the same as last time? How is it different from the last time? How frequent is it? How intense is it? What happened that made that come to you? Do you have any? Did it come from you or did it come from Satan? There's all this sort of care of the soul, which is how the church ran for about 1,600 years, and then the last 400 years has taken a break from that, and that's why the church has stunk for a couple hundred years. Um, and actually, it's why the church has gone back to it. You know, so we've had a couple of hundred years of stinking, and maybe we're going to go back to some of this stuff. We taught, we teach them on us that we never will give this up. You know, and a hundred years later, <laughs> you couldn't. Swinging. 
dead cat and get confessing. Anyway, so here's the thing. So you need a good friend who can help you, stand by you, distract you. You need a good pastor. This is, this is both for long pastorates and frequent confession, where you go to your pastor and say, this is bothering me again. Or your pastor, who's never meant to probe, might even say to you, has this come up? To which you could sometimes say, no, it actually hasn't. To which the pastor can just say, fantastic, the Lord has really blessed you. And so, and that's the, so never to be told, to know you well, never to be told, and to be strengthened. And why Lutherans are adverse to that, I have no idea. I mean, I can't even, I can't even figure it out, you know. So, and actually somebody who, I mean, this is going to be gaining an art, maybe not you, the Vic, you're just a child. But uh, I'm going to die before I find another good confessor. I'm going to, I'm going to die before I find the kind of confessor, because I don't have years left for a confessor to get to know me well enough. I mean, it's just it's a casualty of having older confessors who are in, incapable or die. I'll die before I get another confessor who will know me well enough to really guide me. Because I don't have to find them. They have to get to, I have to train them, and then I have to get to know them. And it's, it's a horrible thing. Now, you, Vic, I mean, if you follow in gaining, you know, if you take gaining as your confessor, and then he would have a good confessor, there might be some hope for you. So that means the church there may be a bright spot in the church around 2070. You know, hold on. You know, but you see, you see how we cheat ourselves. David has Nathan. Nathan comes to him and says, I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. Even David doesn't know who he is, right? I know exactly who you are. And I actually know what's going to happen, and I know the way out. At the end of the day, he washes up his face. Now, why does he do that? We should probably get to the gospel, which is, um, look how this starts. Be gracious to me, O God, in your true love. You be gracious because you love, because in your mercy you blot out my misdeeds. The Lord's doing all the work, and he's doing his gracious gospel work. He is not a God of wrath. He's a God of love. What he intends is to love you in community forever, to have you back in Eden where everything is wonderful, peaceful, joyous, happy, gracious, kind. So the begging I know, I know, I confront my sins and my sins confront me, but be kind to me, be gracious to me, you know, wash away. And I was, I was, looking, up the, I was looking up the wash and cleanse words this morning in Hebrew, trying to figure out if there was something spectacular about those words. The strange thing is there's not. That's the normal word for pounding your clothes on a rock. Now, and I was kind of wondering about that, but I was also thinking about when a pastor says to you, in the stand by the command of Christ, I forgive you all your sins, I was just wondering if you actually believe that. And I was wondering how David could say it to you in a way that you would believe that. I think I told you um, one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. I haven't thought about this for a while. I think I told you when I was in Venice and I was standing next to this icon, which I think is one of the most glorious icons I've ever seen. I would go to Venice just to see that icon. And... Um, there was this woman standing next to me who was weeping. This, you sort of have to take a little bit of turns because it's not that big and everybody wants to see it. And St. Mark is buried right over there. And um, but I think I to told you when I turned around, she had gone and knelt before a priest. And this priest, can you put your arm out? I promise not to hurt you. Um, he had, she had both arms over a railing. And this priest had grasped her like this. And he was pulling her near and looking her in the eye. And she's weeping. And he's, he's He's just gently pulling her toward this giant crucifix that's behind her. And she's just spilling it out and spilling it out and spilling it out. It's as if he physically extracted the sins from her. 
underneath that crucifix. It was one of the coolest, most gentle things I'd ever seen. It was the ultimate pastoral act. Um, and I thought to myself, she's going to leave here knowing that she's forgiven. And, you know, I've often, I'm, I'm, I was trying to think about that um, Psalm 51 thing, whether you leave. David knew he was forgiven. He got up and washed his face. But I was looking at the images there of you have this great love, you wash me, you know, like a shirt gets pounded on a rock, um, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. You, O oh Lord, open my lips. I can't even open my lips myself, but if you'd open my lips, it'll all work out okay. Um, I was wondering about, I was just wondering about all the ways that they say that and whether you'd be convinced whether, whether or not that actually happens to you. I was wondering, um, if you haven't read Gaining's dissertation yet, whether you believe in the sacramentality of the word. So Gaining was the big star at the Fort Wayne Symposia last week under the table. People couldn't get enough of it. You can say someday that you knew him. You knew him when. Uh, uh, so... Um, be gracious to me, O God, in true love, in the fullness of your mercy, blot out all my misdeeds. Wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. You see, it says five times in two verses already. For well I know my misdeeds. I've had a, actually a good confession, and I looked, you know, I think I, I, think I told you about um, once when Pastor Gaining was in confession, and um, the confessor said to him, you've made a good confession, my son, which is about the kindest thing the confessor can say to you. Because what it means is somebody who knows you well has understood that you've done the prep work to come and be forgiven. You've made a good confession, my son. That's where you want to be, not out of any sort of pride, but because when you've put it all out on the table, then it all gets swept away. You made a good confession, my son. All right? So you'd say that of David here. You made a good confession, my son. I know my misdeeds. My sins confront me all day long. Against you, you only have I sinned. So when I sin against you, I sin against God. You know, when you scream at your wife, you, sc you scream at God. And, you know, um, when you scream at your wife, then don't say a prayer and say, it's you and me against my wife, God. That, there's so many things screwed up in that scenario that you can't, you can hardly pull it apart. Against you, you only have I sinned. Done what displeases you or what's evil in your sight. You know this almost by heart, don't you? So that you may be proved right in your charge and in passing sentence. So you know what the right thing is? And this is the ultimate, um, sort of the ultimate expression. You're right, and that's what I deserve. You know, you say to God, yep, you're right, and that's what I deserve. Um, and then, you know, this famous passage that's, that's used for original sin, in iniquity I was brought forth uh, my mother conceived me in sin. Yet, uh, you know what, can somebody else read me? Uh, I don't have a good translation for the next two verses. I, I can actually hardly understand them in this translation, even though I know them. Can somebody just read the next two verses, six and seven? Anybody got it? There you go, that's better than mine. So, Good. So you desire truth in the inner parts, which means full blast. You want it all the way through and through. You want light in every darkness. Um, mine says, oddly, um, you have hidden the truth in the darkness, and, in, and through this mystery you teach me wisdom, which doesn't quite get where you want to go. 
you desire truth in the inmost parts. What's the second part of verse 6? Can you say it again, Jan? You teach me wisdom in the inmost Yeah, you teach me wisdom. So you notice this is external coming in, which, just real honestly, means you have to listen. Um, I don't know what the sermon will be on Sunday, but I can tell you the punchline. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm not preaching gaining guys. Let me, let me put it a different way. I know what the text is, and I know what I would say if I were preaching the text. Is that better? That takes the pressure off? Listen, with an exclamation point, which was what the gospel reading was on Thursday at the Eucharist. Jesus, I mean, it's fascinating. Mark 4, which was the text appointed for the day. We don't pretext. We take the text for the lecture. The text appointed for the day, Jesus starts the parable of the sower by saying one word, listen, exclamation point. Guess what? Why does Jesus say that to the church? Because nobody, yeah. So what you need to do is listen because his word, sharp as a two-edged sword, penetrates, you know, bone and marrow, penetrates darkness, penetrates mystery, penetrates evil, and brings truth. You desire truth in the inmost parts. You desire light in the darkness. You desire people who have stuffed ears to listen. You desire people who have blind eyes to see. You desire people who talk a lot but don't do anything to have their heart match their lips. Your lips are near to me, but your heart is far from me. Or the worst words in the entire Bible. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Those to me are the most, I think, the most horrible words in all of Scripture. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say. That is devastating. Okay, which is exactly what this says right here. But, and Jan um, gave you a bit of gospel there, take hyssop and sprinkle me that I may be clean. Where do you get hyssop? Anybody remember? You know what's fun? Three years ago, I gave a lecture at Wheaton College, and when I go back in the same room, the mark of the hyssop is still there. I can't believe it's still there. They either are gentle to me or they don't have a good cleaning crew. It's one of the two. Um, where do you get hyssop? What do you use hyssop for? Anybody remember? Put the blood on the doorposts. Thank you. Really? <laughs> Amen. That was the best sermon preached here in the last five years. Hyssop is the gospel. Isn't it? That was, you should write that down and give it to the vicar. He could, when he'd send it to us, then we'd say, what a bright boy you are. You understand the gospel like nobody else. Preach it this way. Everything you said is the way of the gospel. He gets bigger and bigger and is beyond your expectations, comes back to war. <sighs> yeah. That's brilliantly done. Why does hyssop purge you? Because it is what you use. Uh, it's, tell us, tell, well, let's see. Tell us about your hyssop plant. What does it look like? If you took a clip off, what's it look like?
good for I think it is. I think it is edible. Yeah. What, the, what is it? Does it look like a paintbrush? Hey, Vic. While you're back there, um, find me the Covenant Renewal Seminary where, uh, where um, Moses splashes the blood from the bowl on the people. I don't know if there's hyssop in that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. So you take it to the places. You actually, Vic, when you're done with that, can you look up the hyssop reference? I don't know if it's in John or not. Is the hyssop in John's gospel? Yeah. Somebody got uh, has it. With it. Do you have it right there? Can you read the verse? Yeah. So anyway, you have this plant that apparently is edible, slightly absorbent, and can look like a paintbrush. And you dip that in the blood, and then you put that on the doorpost and on... On, on the doorpost and on the lintel, which when you do that, of course, makes the sign of the cross, right? So you make a mark this way, you make a mark this way, you put the sign of the cross on your door, and then um, the angel of death passes over. So what he's asking you to believe is that when you, and this is why when it says sprinkle me clean, when people don't think they get enough, when they get sprinkled at baptism, although if I could be an immersion guy, I would be an immersion guy, but I won't live to see it. Um, Luther was an immersion guy. So if you could believe that when you're sprinkled, what touches you forgives you, or what's sprinkled on your house forgives your whole house, that's the hyssop reference. And then do you have the John Vic there? Is there anybody? No, that, don't be sorry at all. Vic, did you find that one, the Exodus part? I may be misdirected you. Do you have it? Can you just read it to me? Yeah. Does it say, does it, does it have a hyssop reference in Exodus 12? There you go. There you go. There you go. Right. There you go. Got something? Yeah, so you get the scroll that makes it holy. There's also one in Leviticus. It's this strange thing where you take two birds, you kill one bird, you um, dip the hyssop in the blood, you tie it to another bird, you take it around your house and sprinkle your house, and then you let the bird free, and kind of in the way a scapegoat, and he takes all your sins away. Isn't that crazy? That's another place. Anyway, the point is, hyssop is connected all the time to having your sins forgiven. And one of our problems is we can't actually believe after the stuff that we've done to have a pastor say to you, I forgive you all your sins, or to Jesus say to you, take eat, take drink my blood for the forgiveness of all your sins. You can't actually believe that it doesn't happen. In fact, even in the, I was bummed this morning, my day started off rottenly when I found the glossary in the new hymnal where for absolution they give a great Presbyterian answer, which is, 
the assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. I'm just like, it makes me want to blow my brains out when I come across stuff like that in a synodic. Why'd you let that through, Vic? I thought you were on doctrinal review. Got to find somebody to blame. That's key in life. Try to remember that. Always find somebody to blame. Really important in life. Absolutely right. Man, we have so much blame to go around, we have to get a deaconess too. <laughs> Speaking of which, here's my, what's my great idea of the day yesterday, Madam Deaconess? What did I say should happen in the Missouri Senate? I didn't just say that. I said Armani should design the new uniforms for the deaconess. That's what I said. In, what did I say? Not just in blue, but in multiple colors. Yes, I think so. So if anybody's got some extra change. Uh, no, I just think, I just think, uh, I just think when the deaconess walks by, people sh shouldn't go, blue, that's a nun's color. No, they should say like, hey, Armani. That's why, but you know, that's just me. All right, anyway, we do have to kind of move, but I think you actually can move. So just, just look at how this goes. It starts with the utter confidence, verse 1, that we're still in the church. Be gracious to me, you love me, you care for me. And then um, when you talk about yourself, this is the great stuff. So God, you're really good. And then um, verse 2, I'm really bad. In fact, I'm a bum. In fact, I've had a good look at myself, and I'm miserable. I don't even know why you hang around. However... I mean, in fact, it's so bad that my mother was bad too, right? But then, however, if you would just get busy and pierce the darkness, verse 6, um, if you would, sacramentally, incarnationally, Old Testamently, prefiguringly, uh, antitypically, sprinkle me with hyssop of the Passover, which would be like Jesus on the cross, which would be like the Lord's Supper that I got on Sunday, that's all in there, um, and then verse 8, let me hear the sound of joy and gladness. Now that you see the healing that comes, but the healing only ever comes after the hard work of confessing and forgiving has been done. You can't have your healing in advance. If you take your healing in advance, you'll chafe it, and it won't last. So once you've been through that horrible thing of saying who you are, and the wonderful thing of the Lord telling you who you are, I'm a bum, the Lord says, actually, you're my bum, and I forgive you. Then, let me hear the sounds of joy and gladness. Let the bones dance which you broke. Right? So I can speak again. I can walk again. Turn away your face from all my sins. So don't look at me. Of course, look at Christ or see Christ in me. And then, you know, of course, what we say in the liturgy, the offertory after the sermon, as you, the first preparation for going up to the supper. You remember, traditionally, we always bring cash up. <laughs> And then there's the great, Enig always wonders why um, <coughs> pastors will genuflect when they hold up the cash. You've seen this, right? The usher's hands on the cash, and so they bow and genuflect to the cash. But of course, if we genuflect and we hold up the blood of Jesus, people will just go crazy with all that high church nonsense. So it tells us what we love. We love our cash, and we'll genuflect. You've seen this, right? Yes, come on. You've never seen, you've never seen when the ushers, here's the, here's the weirdest thing. The ushers, hand, they get the cash. They give the cash to the pastor, and then they bow to the cash. Right, and then the pastor turns around, and he holds the cash up to the Lord, and he bows to the cash too. It's like, we got the cash. But God forbid when he holds up the chalice that he would bow to that. Oh, my gosh, the high church stuff. So we'll bow to the cash. I mean, this is true. Just watch liturgy. This is how little we know about what we're doing. Just, just. That's why you're wonderful, ultra-guild, pure-hearted Christian and why I need to go back and confess. This is exactly the reason why. 
But here's the thing. You'll also notice that after, after one bow, so I'll read it a counter-argument. You give your initial bow before the name and, or through the confession. You enter the presence of the curia, and you're good to go for the whole time. So another bow there is really illicit unless something remarkable, miraculous would happen, not like people tithing, not big enough, although I will say miraculous, uh, but in fact, the blood of Jesus coming from heaven down to earth. That'd be the, see? So you're, very, you're careful with your bows because the only time we bow would be and he became man, came to earth, or at the Eucharist, the blood of Christ, right? So you sort of measure that um, for your biggest moments. I just find it odd that one of your biggest moments is taking the offering. Because what I was going to say, in the good old days before there was cash, this was the point where they brought bread and wine forward for the Eucharist. That was the offering. We need to bring something forward so that the Lord can make a miracle, which is not a bad practice if you can get it from here to there without spilling it. So, no, in fact, one day when I was one when, when, when I was a young boy, this is the sort of things you face. This is how this is how good your life is. Once when I was a young boy and I was preaching at a parish in New Jersey and it was a big parish, like 400 people. I went in the back. I was filling in for the pastor. I went in the back. No lie, they were filling the individual cups with cranberry juice sparkler. From, from a juice box. You should see how easy it is. You alter gilders. If you use a ju- you know how you can squirt a kid with a juice box across a minivan? It goes the same thing. It goes right out the straw and the little thing. So I walk in. I'm the, guest, I'm the guest preacher. I'm not ordained yet. I'm the guest preacher. And they're filling, honestly, from juice boxes. They're filling the individual cups with bottom of juice boxes. And I'm just like, you know, I, so I actually, I actually didn't say anything to the women because it's not their fault that, it, that somebody didn't tell them that the Lord didn't take cranberry juice sparkler and have the, but I, I just, I said, I, I don't know if I can go on, you know, because I'm going to be part of something that I shouldn't be part of. Talk about being struck down in stride. Uh, so I don't know. I actually, I honestly, maybe I'm blocking. I actually don't remember what happened. I, but I don't remember if they actually went ahead, and I don't even, I don't even remember. It was, it was horrific, all I can, is all I can tell you. But see, Vic, you're m- marvelously free of that. So isn't life good? So you take blame for some stuff, but other things, it all equals out. It's life in the church. So at the off, you would say, bring in the gifts forward, bread and wine for the Eucharist. You'd beg him to make you clean. Um, it's Joel. Let the priest go to the altar with weeping, uh, begging for the mercy of the Lord, which is what, why we say the Kyrie. In between the time we say, you notice we don't enter the rail. We get to the rail. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we wouldn't go into holy space without being forgiven. And so we can, we, with you, we confess. With you, we are forgiven. And only after we're forgiven do we move to the altar. And as we do that, we beg him to love us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You move at the point as you beg for mercy. In the same way at the offertory, as you prepare for the Eucharist, you beg for mercy. Create in me a clean heart, O God, which basically means I've got a ruined heart, but if you create a new heart, and then if you take this bread and wine, if you make that your body and blood, then things are going to work out for us. See, it all, it all kind of fits together. There's just one song, and the scriptures keep singing it, which is, I'm a thoroughgoing bum, and the Lord died for thoroughgoing bums. Only the dead can be resurrected. So create in me a pure heart, O oh God. Give me a new and steadfast spirit. You see this? So once you forgive me, actually it's not enough to just live at the bare minimum. A new and steadfast spirit means it's a new life, and steadfast means you do it over and over and over again 
which means I'm not going to sleep with my next door neighbor again or kill her husband or any other stuff I just did. Don't drive me out from your presence, which is what I deserve. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me because, after all, there is that story in Ezekiel where the people are so sinful the Spirit leaves the temple. That's actually a horrible story, too. You remember how it was? The Spirit's in the temple. This is actually why... In the scriptures, everything is connected to everything. But someday when we go to Jerusalem, you know, the temple is here. This is east. <clears throat> the temple is here. And in Ezekiel, there's a story where the people get so sinful. They're so hard-hearted. They so won't listen that the, 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 um, the Kidron Valley is right here, right here. The Mount of Olives is right here. Bethany is up at the top, um, over, over the top. And the Holy Spirit leaves the temple. It's, it's a startling. They're so evil and they so won't listen. He just says, I've just had it with all of you. I've had it. You've said this to your kids, have you not? I mean, you won't pick up your stuff? I, I'm going out. I'm going to the Kmart. I think that's where parents go. So he says, I've had it with you. And it's, it's this haunting thing where he doesn't, it's so bad that he doesn't just leave. He actually stops here, pauses, crosses the valley, pauses, looks back, and then he leaves anyway. It is a horrible story about being abandoned and yet then you remember at when the, in the gospels you're supposed to hear all this when Jesus comes back and he heals he raises Lazarus from the dead Bethany and then he comes back over the top for Palm Sunday and he retraces the steps of the Holy Spirit and he comes to the temple and he brings the spirit back to the temple isn't that cool which is why then in graveyards you bury people facing the east Jesus will come again from the east. So when you sit up, my uncle in Michigan, buried on the side of a hill and the facing east. They could have buried you in any direction, north, south, east, west. Everybody's buried facing east so that when, east is this way. So when you are resurrected, you sit up right through your coffin, boom, through six feet of dirt. When you sit up, Jesus says, hiya, how's it going? Good to see you again. This ought to be fun. Like that. Because you won't want to miss. And that's why churches are built facing east, too. So if the Lord comes in the middle of the service, you won't miss a minute of eternity. It's an occupational hazard of being before you take vows. You should know this. You're going to miss about 10 seconds of eternity. Because everybody else is going to be like, they'll be like this. You'll be facing them. They're facing east. So you're, you're gonna, they're going to be like this. You're going to be like, pay attention. Listen. It's in the text for this week. Pay attention to me. And they're going to be going like, you're going to be like, stop that. Then you'll turn around and everything's going to be okay then. All right? Is that true? Your bed's supposed to be north-south. Now, I don't follow the logic except that it makes the sign of the cross, but um, <laughs> why, would you, why would you have your bed the opposite direction? The direction of death? You feng shui woman, you are so hip. Who's Cedric Adams? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Cedric the Entertainer. I, got, okay, I do know who he is. Barbershop and like that. Okay, really, Cedric Adams is a big deal in Minnesota? Did he have a tent? And a revival? said that? 
Were you from Minnesota? So he's like a Harry Reasoner guy? He's a Walter Cronkite? Charles Kuralt guy. Except Charles Kuralt had two families. So he did not that part of Charles Kuralt, but you know. It's always weird at a funeral when the other family shows up. That is the weirdest thing for a pastor when the other family shows up. I'm his wife. No, I'm his wife. You're like, ooh. They didn't teach us this at seminary. It happens once or twice to a pastor, and it does. It is a, everybody has to have a funeral. You've got to have a motorcycle funeral. You've got to have each of these kind of funerals. Multiple spouse funerals. You've got to have one. I guess he, <laughs> it was really, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a different kind of life. I just want to assure you that you're, you, and, you're, and, and believe me, you're, you're, you're all that I can, I, there's not more that I could wish for, hope for, or keep up with. I, I just want you to know. There's no, there won't be any surprises when I drop dead. I just, I just want you to know. Oh, boy. Yes, that's right. Ah. Oh. We got to go. I'll teach. No, but I just want to note for you what a new spirit means. A new, a new spirit means doesn't mean you mope around. Okay, so there's like no moping around. You come. You have a thorough. People, this is what we can't understand. You come. You have this thoroughgoing. I am a. I am a bum. And then you get a thoroughgoing forgiveness. You are mine. And then David gets up and he washes his face and he goes back to being king. You get up, you wash your face, and you go back to being father, mother, pastor, teacher, brother, whatever you are. You get back to your business with a new heart. And the whole rest of this is about this. Look, so you, have a, you created me a clean heart. Fantastic. I'm new. I'm steadfast. That's verse 10. Um, um, revive me in the joy so you go forth joyfully. Give me a willing spirit, willing to listen, willing to do, willing to obey, right? Then I'll get busy. I'll teach. I'll be a witness, right, to transgressors. I'll teach them their way so that other sinners return to you. So, if, I mean, part of this is part of the thing is people think, why don't you join the church because the church is going to ruin your fun? No, the church is going to give you life. Christ is going to give you life. Real life is confession and absolution. That's all there is. So, God, my deliverer, save me from bloodshed. So I'll teach, and then you save me, and then I'll sing your praise, and you will open my lips because I can do that on my own, and then I'll proclaim your praise you don't really like fake stuff, like sacrifice that doesn't really mean anything. What you really want is um, a broken spirit, a wounded heart, a heart that can be forgiven. Then we'll all agree. I'll bring, your sac I'll bring you sacrifices, and you'll delight in your sacrifices, and you'll be my God, and I'll be your child, and you'll take me to the promised land, and until then, um, I'll try to live the life I'm supposed to live. So basically, this entire psalm is about God putting you back in the place where you're supposed to be and making you the sort of person that he wants, not the sort of person you want. The kind of person you want to be is the kind of person that sleeps with your next-door neighbor and then murders people when they find out. That's the kind of person you want to be. The kind of person God wants you to be is the kind of person who confesses all that as the most horrible offense to God and man and forgives you and then doesn't abandon you, but rather holds you near and continues to use that. He does his best work uh, with horrible folks, which is why in the Australian ordination vows, um, they say one thing, we'd, uh, they say to a pastor, the pastor said, and will you despair of no man? The brilliant thing. And will you despair, which means you'll never give up on him. Will you despair of no man? That's this psalm. God despairs of no man if he doesn't despair of you then I can't, and you can't despair of me, and forward you go. 
but on his terms, confession and absolution, not on our terms. Make sense? See? All right. Um, everything was off this morning. I got upstairs and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, it, honestly, I'm standing up there thinking it's 10 minutes to 9. I look at my watch, it's 12 minutes after, and now we're 7 minutes long, so um, sorry. Do you, have a, do you have a psalm that you want to do? Anybody got one you want to do next week? You got something stick in there? If not, give us a buzz. Otherwise, we'll find one. There's tons to do. Anyway, love you. Thank you. Um, go to confession. Go to the altar. Be a new person. Love it. Live in joy. Okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.